Welcome to another podcast, The Usable Past. Ella Baker said that strong people don't need strong leaders. But one thing that I've experienced is that change needs strong organizers. So today we have a conversation with James Hayes, who is a community organizer in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, Marie Nahikian, that's me, who was a community organizer from 1968 to 2018. James has been an organizer since graduating from college in 2008. He said his first business card said organizer, and he's worked in Ohio and Mississippi. Um, I've worked in New York, Brooklyn, Washington, D.C. So here's our conversation about the crossover and intergenerational leadership involved in community organizing. James is here um, and has been a part of our lives, uh, a friend, um, for what, 10 years now? Yeah. 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 2008, 2018. That's right. Coming on 11 years. So now. in 2008, you met... Um, my son, Chafin, at The Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. And you're still in Columbus. Yep. He's back in Brooklyn. Um, so tell me about, how did you all meet in 2008? Yeah, I mean, Chafin was the first friend I made at OSU. Um, we met at the, the Early Arrival Program for African American Males. Um, so we were there with about 100 other young black men all getting ready to uh, start our careers as students in college. And um, yeah, immediately we just we just bonded and um, have been friends ever since. So Chavin was from Brooklyn, and there's a kind of strange little Brooklyn connection here because there was a, I mean, you grew up in Columbus, so you grew up in the shadow of OSU, but mm-hmm. there was, you had a favorite professor that was involved in this early program for African-American males, right? Yeah, yeah, Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, uh, who's a brilliant history professor, historian at, at OSU, and uh, yeah, he's, he's from Crown Heights, from Brooklyn. Um, yeah, so a different Crown Heights than we see today. Without a and- doubt. Without 2018, yeah. as opposed to even 2008. I mean, 10 yeah. years ago. Um, wow. And I can remember moving here in um, 1991 when there was a, there was actually a riot of sorts between um, the Hasidic Jewish community and the black community over... Um, an accident, supposedly an accident, where a young African-American child was hit by a, a car driving a, a rabbi. Mm-hmm. So there's a big history in Crown Heights. Mm-hmm. And today, uh, Crown Heights is represented in the U.S. Congress by Hakeem Jeffries, mm-hmm. the brother of Dr. Jeffries, who you and Chafin met at OSU. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know uh, Congressman Jeffries that well. Uh, never met him in person, but if he's anything like his brother, I'm sure he's a good guy. So you and Chafin remained friends, even though you were in very different paths, uh, kind of academically and otherwise, um, 
at Ohio State, but we got to know you over the years. Um, mm-hmm. And you graduated, you both graduated in... 2012. 2012. So, how did, how, did, how did OSU take you down a different path? Or was it OSU or was it the world? What was it that took you down the path that you're on now? Mm. Where you actually had a first job... Yeah, yeah, my first job um, coming out of OSU um, was with an organization that I helped to start um, my senior year of college called the Ohio Student Association. And yeah, you know, I, I my first, my very first job coming out of high school um, was I uh, was able to get a job as a page at the Ohio State House and started that uh, in spring semester my freshman year and that job till I graduated. Were you the only African American male who was a intern um, in the legislature? I was not. I was not. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. But historically, that is, that is definitely uh, yeah, the case. It's definitely yeah. the case. Um, but it was it, you know what had happened in two thousand six. Uh, the Democrats came into the majority in the Ohio in the Ohio House, House of House of Representatives and. Um, so there was a little more diversity uh, coming in from about 2006 to 2010. Oh, okay. I was there. just kind of curious as a footnote there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you graduated in 2012, yep. and you helped to start an organization? Yeah, yeah. So um, the beginning of my senior year, so 2011, uh, September 2011, um, is when um, you know the Occupy Wall Street movement had, had erupted here in, in New York. Um, and uh, swept throughout the world. Uh, you know, I think over a hundred cities in the world had occupations, and um, there were tons. Of, there was tons of energy unleashed on the campuses. You know, in this country and in Ohio, um, you know, I was part of I don't know hundreds of college students that were um, taking leadership and organizing. And uh, you know, we were trying to draw attention to inequality and racism and imperialism and all, all these all these big systemic problems in the world and kind of out of out of that energy and uh, other issues that were going on in Ohio we, we created an organization called the Ohio Student Association so there were about 150 of us that came together to found it um, in January 2012 and so that was actually the first job I had when I graduated um, that summer uh, you know I, I assumed I was going to probably stay in the state house orbit you know get a job as a legislative aide or something like that um, but when I was able to come on staff with the Ohio Student Association, I think I, uh, my life really, really began, um, uh, you know, and, and was able to step into my purpose more. So it was really a blessing. And what was your title? What was your job title? Organizer. Um, yeah, and at that point, nobody really knew what that meant. I had a business card that said organizer, and the only people that knew what it meant were folks who could remember the 60s and 70s. and. Um, you know, I'm not a very organized person myself, my car, my, my closet, you know, if you, if you just look at that, you, you know, the way I I live, you might think he, what does he organize? He doesn't organize anything. But, uh, so I had to explain to people what, what, what organizing is, um, what what do you mean when we say about organizing people, organizing. So what's, so what's your short definition of being an organizer? Short definition. Um, organize, being an organizer is all about helping others uh, become leaders, um, helping build leadership in communities. Um, Ella Baker, uh, who really, I think it should be the model for every organizer, she used to say, strong people don't need strong leaders. And I think um, I really took that to heart and 
came to understand organizing is helping to build strong people. Uh, so in 1971-72, when I was working in the Adams Morgan community of Washington, D.C., um, I didn't call myself an organizer, and I definitely didn't have a business card, but I used to... I guess when I look back on it, I think I define organizing as uh, bringing people together to help make people's lives better. Totally, totally, yeah. And the key word there is together, and, and it has to be people. You know, I think so often we think problems are solved by great individuals, you know, and that's how we understand history. That's how we understand the civil rights movement. You know, there are great individuals who we lionize, but in reality, it's the everyday work of grassroots folks building organizations, coming together to solve problems collectively. That really moves history forward. So there are a bunch of crossovers here. Uh, I had I was involved with a project called the Pilot District Project in Washington, D.C., which was dealing with uh, unfair policing practices, police violence. Uh, you were involved with Black Lives Matter at, at, at the point that that was being organized in and you went to Cleveland to work on Black Lives Matter as well as Columbus, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the you know, Black Lives Matter as a movement really emerged um, in 2014 following the murders of Mike Brown and Ferguson and uh, Eric Garner here in New York. And in Ohio, a young man named John Crawford III was murdered in uh, Walmart in Beaver Creek, uh, which is a suburb of Dayton, um, and he, John Crawford was, was killed actually a couple of days before Mike Brown and Ferguson. Um, and so, you know, we in Ohio, like that Walmart where he was murdered is right down the street from Wright State University. Um, so we have a lot of students who are part of the student association that went to Wright State that shopped oh. in that Walmart. Um, and so we jumped, you know, into action to, you know, make sure that there was a light being shown on what had happened. Um, and that there was being pressure being put on the attorney general to make sure there was a thorough investigation on the local police department to make sure that the officer was held accountable um, and mobilize public support, you know, to, to care about what happened to John Crawford and, and other young black people uh, who've, been, who've lost their lives at the hands of police and state violence. So one of the other kind of important connections is that... Um, a lot of the very early organizing in Washington, D.C., uh, and certainly the person who became mayor, uh, Marion Barry, as well as a circle of people that he worked with were all involved with an organization called SNCC, mm -hmm. a Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, and these were all people that, you know, were important in the, uh, in the growth of organizing in Washington, D.C., so I can't remember what year it was, but one day I think you and I were talking on the phone, maybe you called me up and said, Marie, did you know Cortland Cox? Mm -hmm. So tell me about your meeting Cortland Cox. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know getting to know uh, a lot of the elders in SNCC has been one of the, uh, the greatest honors, honestly, um, of my organizing career, you know, I got I mentioned Ella Baker when I sort of gave my definition of organizing, and Ella Baker was instrumental in setting up SNCC and the, the the way that they approached organizing, and so very much the model. And for us, you know, as young people, um, 
you know, coming of age and, and trying to start movements, SNCC has always been the, the standard. And I met, I met Cortland uh, and a lot of the SNCC people as we were um, really, you know, coming, you know, so 2014 was the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. And so there was, uh, no, 2013, sorry. Um, and there was a 50th anniversary march planned, you know, and a lot of, a lot of the, the young movement folks, we, 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 we convened there. And, um, you know, that summer was the summer when George Zimmerman was acquitted uh, by a jury of his peers. So that's, so you, so it was 2013 and it was the summer you were in Washington, D.C. Yeah, okay. August, August of 2013. Okay. Yeah. And um, there was a, there's an organization in Florida uh, called the Dream Defenders. Um, and they really, they emerged after Trayvon Martin was murdered and they, they led the movement there. And after George Zimmerman was, a, was a found not guilty, uh, they executed a month-long occupation of the governor's office in Florida, um, calling for an end to the standard ground law, there and um, and and and, uh, and you know, among other things and so that uh, that that gathering in D.C. of the March on Washington, um, you know, there there had been a lot of action, you know, uh, and we felt that you know, rather than commemorating the legacy of the civil rights movement with another round of renewed activism and organizing, um, you know, folks were gathering just to have a party, you know. It was just like, hey, look what we accomplished, uh, you know, 50, 50 years, years ago. later. And, yeah, you know, and 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 we were looking around at the world and saying these problems, if anything, they might be getting worse, you know, rather than right. getting better. Uh, right. All the gains that, that were made. It's kind of was, like what happened yeah. 50 years ago, yeah, yeah, or what happened in the intervening 50 years. Yeah, yeah, it seemed, you know, and so we we and also what happened during that uh, that day is Philip uh, Agnew who's uh, who at the time was the executive director of the Dream Defenders, he was scheduled to speak um, at the March on Washington, you know, and as we all remember John Lewis speaking at the March on Washington, at the original March of Royal, I guess it's the second March on Washington, in 63, um, being, you know, a, a seminal point, you know, young people uh, really drove the movement in 61 and 62, and um, uh, so Philip Agnew was supposed to speak, and there's another woman named Sophia Campos was supposed to speak, uh, who was at the time was the board of directors for United We Dream, which is the national network of undocumented, mostly uh, Latinx youth, and both of them, their time, both of their times were cut um, to make space for Bill Clinton to speak, and uh, you know we, a you know we we were offended that the the youth leadership was cut, um, but on top of that, to make space for Bill Clinton, you know the man who oversaw the '94 crime bill, and you know uh, sort of. Helped was one of the architects of this era of mass incarceration that we you that know, you be, were that you were struggling we with, were struggling, as well yeah, as exactly. things like stand your ground, etc. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so the young people, we 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 left and and we said. Uh, so did you all kind of, as a large group, walk out of the march on Washington, or kind did of you just you kind of just kind said, of, but you know, this, you know, the, there were so many people there, you couldn't, you know. Our, our absence wasn't necessarily noticed. Wasn't exactly noted. <laughs> um, but Don't uh, remember any news reports about, no. oh, the young people left. No, no, no. Um, or the young organizers. The young organizers, yeah, yeah. And so, but we decided um, after that that we would um, come together to 
um, honor the 50 years um, of struggle with a new round of struggle. And we knew that the next summer, 2014, was going to be the 50th anniversary of the struggle in Mississippi for Freedom Summer um, that happened in 64. And that was, that was really led by SNCC. That was the SNCC strategy. Bob Moses and among others um, or, orchestrating the voter registration drive in Mississippi, building the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And so... And uh, that was where a lot of the original SNCC leadership that I got to know and work with in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. they were all there for that Freedom Summit. Yeah. yeah. And that was really um, the turning point in the 60s. I wasn't there. I was a little young. Yeah. But Anyway. Yeah, I know. And yeah, that was, and that, you know, so much, so many really important leaders came out of that time period. And that was really when the movement, the civil rights movement moved from, you know, from only having protest tactics as the base to also doing political organizing and building political And direct power. action. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that pro, that switch from protest to politics is something that I've always, you know, thought was very necessary for movements to make, and so we we learned a lot from SNCC. We we you know contacted the SNCC elders. Uh, at that now, point. were they? Would I mean, how did you contact SNCC elders? Did you send them an email, or were they organized? Or yeah, they're organized. They have a I think called the SNCC Legacy Project um, that works to you know tell the history and you know, reconvene their, their folks from time to time. Um, you know, so I I didn't have the, I didn't personally have the relationship with them at the time. There were some of the you know, you know, within the youth organizers, there were. You know, I was still young on the young side of, of even that. Right. that some bracket. of the older young. Some organizers. of the older, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Some of the folks who are my age now, um, you know, were. This is a footnote. My age now is what twenty eight. Twenty eight. Yeah. Okay, 28, so yeah. that's really old, right? <laughs> hey, you know, I'll tell you the SNCC folks. One of the things they told us was that um, that we would be considered old in their movement. They said, you know. Bob Moses, when he was 25, was the old man of the of, of the movement, you know, and they had all these 17 year olds and 18 year olds taking action, risking their lives, and so, so yeah, and, I, and that was inspiring for me, you know, just to really think about yeah, the power of young people when we give young people leadership and we we don't in, infantilize them, you know, they can really make uh, make some bold changes, um, but yeah, so but yeah, there there were other others who had those relationships, and uh, we had a lot of a lot of mentors um, who were also in sort of that. The in-between generation, um, uh, like Judith Brown Deannis, who's executive director of Advancement Project. Um, she was really instrumental in, in helping us get our footing uh, in, that, in that, that organizing project that came to be known as the Freedom Side. Um, so we created a, a collective called the Freedom Side that was bringing together young organizers of color who were leading organizations that were based on the ground in different places. So, of course, Mississippi, um, where that summer... Um, so you went to Mississippi? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. I had to go to Mississippi. Um, you know, we we all went there in the summer for the you know for the 50th, 50th anniversary conference of Freedom Summer, um, but we also went to support um, our our comrades there who were organizing a ballot initiative to um, put, add to the Mississippi State Constitution a requirement to have a public education system, which they they actually don't. There's no requirement uh, for a public education system. In um, in Mississippi right now. Yeah, there was no requirement for public education. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you went to Mississippi, and was that the first time you met a lot of the SNCC elders, or had you met some before then? We we met a few. Uh, 
who came to, you know, we had several planning retreats for our, the summer of action that we had planned um, to commemorate Freedom Summer. And uh, so there, there, was, there were some folks who definitely came to some of those retreats. But, um, but that was the first time that I, I really got to see, yes, all, so many of the SNCC folks that we hear about, you know, to see Julian Bond walking around. You know, Judy Richardson, did you meet Judy Richardson? Yes, yes, right. Judy Richardson, uh, Mary King. Uh, you know, of course, Bob Moses and uh, Cortland were there, and and that, and that, that conference is really where I, where I met Cortland and got to spend you know, some one on one time with him, and um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been able to maintain a relationship over the last couple of years with him, which has been which has been really great. And of course, I worked with Cortland in D.C., and at one point, I think Cortland and I were both working in the first Marion Berry administration when mm-hmm. he was elected mayor of the District of Columbia. So when you ask that question, this whole kind of uh, world kind of came together in a way, and this was, this was not even now, 2018. This was like 2015, 2016. 2013. 2013, yeah. 2014, it was 2014, yeah. Who would have ever guessed that four years later, Mm -hmm. we really do feel like we're seeing, at least my age, Mm -hmm. feel like we're seeing our world kind of roll back in front of us. Yeah. As you, a new, younger organizer, uh, at least younger to me, Mm -hmm. um, are struggling with the same issues. The gentrification, which we call displacement, mm-hmm. uh, policing and, and safety and security and finding a safe space to live, mm-hmm. uh, even if you have a place to live, is it a safe place to live? Uh, food scarcity, all of that yeah. um, are continue to be the issues. So that's the usable past. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, you know, from your experience of of meeting and getting to know the SNCC elders, um, you mentioned one thing that was a lesson, was something you walked away with, which is being told that at your age today, you would consider old and do not discount the strength of 17, 18-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um are there other things you, you think you you took away from that you still incorporate in your in your work today? Totally, yeah, yeah without a doubt. Um, I mean, I think the first and most important thing is um, you know having a real commitment to you know, improving people's lives, and I think that's something that um, folks who are trying to there's a lot of theorizing about the world and about how to change the world that happens in sort of social movement spaces, organizing spaces, and SNCC always embodied, you know, having that sort of eye towards the future and, you know, having a big vision for the world, but also doing the concrete day-to-day tasks of being in communities, being on the ground, talking to real people in communities and, and prioritizing their leadership, you know, the leadership of directly impacted communities, frontline communities, and um, that's that's been one of the, the most important lessons. Is so it's empowerment. I mean, to use the, a big fancy word, yeah, it's yeah. empowerment. 
to use a more kind of common everyday connection, it's do people have enough to eat? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, do people have enough to eat? And and then connecting the dots with you know how uh, the structure that we live in, the society that we live in, um, produces people who don't have enough to eat. You know, and as Martin Luther King said, an edifice that produces beggars needs to be restructured. Um, and yeah, so that, that's been one lesson. Another big lesson is the importance of intergenerational leadership. And learn, Yay! Right? Yeah. <laughs> I know that's the, that's the sort of the point of this podcast. And, and I think it's so, so important because there's just so many lessons that I've been able to uh, uh, take with me um, from the experience of folks in SNCC and others who have been doing this work for much longer than me. You know, that I remember when I first started doing this work, you know, I, I really, I, I thought, you know, there hadn't been any, any, any other type of work in 50 years, you know. Um, I remember meeting an organizer who, uh, you know, had been, you know, it was like, I've been organizing for 10 years. I can, want to train you on how to, how to do this. I'm like, well, you've been organizing for 10 years and the world's gotten worse in that 10 years. You must not know how to organize, you know. But the truth is, um, at that time, I was just, you know, an arrogant, you know, kid who was, uh, you know, didn't think I, I could do anything wrong. Um, and so, you know, there, there's an importance of have, for really having that intergenerational leadership. And, and I think it's also was an intentional effort on behalf of the United States government to disrupt the, you know, the, that passing down of knowledge, that passing down of resources and, you know, COINTELPRO and the rise of mass incarceration and, uh, the drug war and all these things, I think, have conspired to really rob, particularly the black community, of that, you know, that light, that lineage, you know, of leaders. And, right. you know, you look now, I mean, you have leaders in the black community who are, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and the next generation, you know, like, you're a young leader in the black community if you're 45, you know. Right. There's, there's not really a, um, the, the pipelines and the infrastructure we need to sustain um, that that leadership development work over over the long haul. So, it, it's an important it's an important lesson to figure out how you leave how you leave behind some lessons, and yeah. how you leave behind uh, the fact that you can't lose sight of uh, making people's everyday lives better. Yeah. Because. And I think that's the hard thing about connecting with things like voting rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, voting's going to make my life better. No, it's not going to make your life better tomorrow. So exactly. the other important lesson I think you're talking about is that change happens in really small steps. I think it does, you know. But the way I talk about the way I talk about that dynamic is I feel like change in history kind of moves almost kind of like tectonic plates. You know, we're you know over over a long period of time, you see how far the continents have moved away from one another, you know? But you don't feel that on a day-to-day basis all the time. It's almost like climate change, right? Almost, you know? And then, but then there are these moments, you know, where there's earthquakes and tsunamis, and, and you can feel the shifting of the tectonic plates, you know? And I think that happens in the development of societies, you know, where there's little changes, little uh, developments, and then all of a sudden you enter a time period where... You know, it seems like everything could change all at once. And, uh, you know, I I think now, you know, with the development of more and more communications technology and the development of the Internet, we're getting to have more and more of those moments where it seems like things can change quickly. Um, And and I think, you know, 
it's it's important to remember that yeah, change takes time. But if we if we lose sight that there is the ability to make qualitative leaps in the way we organize our society, um, then we'll always be tinkering around the edges when we really need to get to the root of the problem. So. You use the word commitment. Mm-hmm. Is this something you're going to do for the rest of your life? Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think I can get out of it. You know, there's a, there's a commitment, um, you know, to my community that I come from, uh, that I live in today. There's a commitment I have, you know, to my, my family, my mother. You know, I do this work really because of my mom and how she raised me. Um, and, uh, there's a commitment, you know, to the future, um, that I have not you know, these problems are not going anywhere, uh, on their own. Um, they need people to take responsibility for, for doing something for them. And, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard for me to turn that off. Yeah. Well, we have this, uh, whole new crop of elected officials, a lot of them women, Mm -hmm. uh, many of them women of color, who've just uh, arrived in Washington, D.C. and have said some amazing things like, you mean my health care insurance when I was a waitress? Does it cost three times as much as my health care as a congresswoman? Mm -hmm. Um, So is electoral politics, do do we need to keep focused on that? Without a doubt, yeah. No, we have to... Even though your next-door neighbor in Columbus and wherever is going to say, James, excuse me, it's not going to change my property taxes. Mm-hmm. But you got to be able to say what? What I usually tell people is, you know, that we're, you know, you can't change all these problems by voting, but you can't change them without voting. Thank you. Thank <laughs> and, you. Um, yeah, so I, I think sometimes, yeah, we, we, when, we, when we tell people that you can change things, if you just show up to the ballot box, things will improve. We're lying to people, and then that creates distrust. And you come back the next four years, you say the same thing, and then another four years, you say the same thing. And the truth is, there has to be a commitment day in, day out to building the political will to make these big changes. And that, that's how that's what organizing does. That's what movement building does. So organizing people to hold elected officials accountable. Exactly, yeah. yeah it's In like, other kind words, of like playing whack-a-mole. And can, you, and can you elect people who, in fact, are organizers? Exactly. And will continue yeah. to do that organizing? Without a doubt. Yeah, no, if you, if you operated as an organizer from the position of elected official, you can have a huge impact, you know, because you're talking to your constituents, you have... A huge list of everybody in your district, and you can you can really do intentional leadership development work. You can let people know what bad things are coming down the pike. You can mobilize right. people around um, around things in the future. So, I, an example I use often is uh, Keith Ellison, uh, who's a congressman in Minneapolis. Uh, was an organizer, and you know every election, you know he, he's safe. You know it's not like he has to run a hard campaign every time. You know in order to be reelected, but he still has the highest vote turnout almost every time of any congressional member um, and it's because his people are organizing their district and telling them about the importance of voting not just for Keith but voting on other issues that are happening in Minnesota um, voting um, you know just being involved in the process 
And, uh, you know, the, I remember a couple of years ago there was a ballot initiative in Minnesota that passed narrowly. And one of the main reasons it passed because there was really high vote turnout in, in Representative Ellison's district. And, uh, you know, without, but, you know, he wasn't running a race in which he was. Right, in he wasn't danger. running for re election. Yeah, and so, the, but the fact that he was organizing his district, you know, led to other things, uh, other good things happening in Minnesota. So the other. The other important thing that I think you're sharing, you're, you're, you're pointing out is the whole notion of an elected official sharing power. Mm-hmm. And can you share power? And how do you go about doing that? Totally, Because yeah. people get sucked in. They get sucked into that, that mm-hmm. world of power that makes you think... And I've seen it happen to progressive leaders. You've seen it happen to progressive leaders yeah. that they get sucked into that notion that, you know, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I have the power now. You know, I can walk the streets of, of Washington, D.C. as a congressperson and not think about the fact that these are people who have no vote. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, the same is true of, of a whole bunch of other issues. So sharing power. Sharing, sharing power, power. Yeah, being in relation to a movement. I think. Long-term commitment, mm-hmm. sharing power, connecting to what people need to make their lives better on a day-to-day basis. So even though voting, what was the word you used? That you're not going to change things by voting, but you're definitely not going to change things by not voting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's you know there's another lesson because the alternative is not very pretty. No, it's not, and, and you know, and, and I think uh, you know there you know there are people who would like to just build alternative institutions and structures outside of you know the dominant institutions we have. You know, so rather than try to reform those things through voting and advocacy work, let's just build our own stuff. You know, let's build our own thing. We can't even reform that, but it's really hard to be able to really impact. Everyday people at scale when you're building these really small, right. safe communities. Little so spaces. you've got to make the connections. You have which, to make the connections. Which leads us to why we were having this discussion because it's about the usable past. Mm, mm-hmm. So we could talk some more and maybe we will, but totally. let's, let's leave it at that and know that there is a connection and there are crossovers and there are. Um, moments in time where there'll be the tectonic plate movements mm-hmm. and just make sure that, as James pointed out, you see them move. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you.